0: this is a true story. I heard this back many, many years ago. There was a young man in a particular church who was eager to be used by the Lord in the area of prophecy. And, you know, it was at that time where, you know, people were, you know, I guess giving, you know, a word or or something like that. And so this young man, he got up in the church service and he, and he began to speak forth. And In that sense, prophesy, if you will. And he was laying down what was supposedly a really, you know, word from God, just a word from the Lord. After a couple minutes, his conscience got the best of him, and he immediately blurted out, Oh, man, I'm in the flesh. (laughs) And then he sat down. For the believer, we have the desire to walk in the spirit, to be in the spirit, to be used in the Holy Spirit. Amen. But there are times, sometimes we get into the flesh, we step out of the realm of the spirit and we get, as the Bible would tell us, as the New Testament would teach us, we we walk according to the flesh in that moment. Getting in the flesh, according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, is the attempt to do anything that is spiritual and of the Spirit, of faith, and thinking and acting and performing in a fleshly way to carry it out. To be in the flesh, or to get in the flesh, is really against the Spirit, and you can read that section of Galatians 5, where Paul really kind of lays that out and outlines it. We get in the flesh when we're tempted to accomplish something that would and should be a gift of God and provided at the hand of God in our, and we attempt to do it in our own ways and outside of God's standard for our lives. Tonight, we're gonna to take a look at the time when Sarah, Abram's wife, and Abraham, Abram himself get in the flesh. They try to accomplish God's will outside of his plan, outside of his standard. They try to help God out in doing what he said he was going to do. And that's kind of where they got off track. Tonight, we'll see what happens in our lives when we get in the flesh and what we should do about it. And we'll see that God always sees us and goes after us, even if we if we run, even if we run away. So let's dive in. If you're taking notes tonight, the first point is this, drawn away. Drawn away, that's what happens to us when we get in the flesh. We're literally drawn away and enticed. Let's pick it up, verse one of Genesis 16. It says this. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. And then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, A- husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he we went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mit- mistress became despised in her eyes. Drawn away. You look back at chapter 15. Remember last chapter, Last chapter, we saw that there were two promises that God gave, that God revisited, really. Abram, you're going to have an heir from your body. That was the first one. And number two, I'm going to give your descendants this land, the land of Canaan. So Abram was told, he was promised that he would have an heir from his own body. Of course, this was originally promised in chapter 12, Genesis 12, when God called him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and called him to go to the land of Canaan. And, and, and he told him, I'm going I'm to make you the father of, of many nations. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you great. And you're going to have this seed, this offspring that's going to come from you. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through this. And so that was chapter 12. Last chapter, chapter 15, God reiterates it and says, I am telling you that you will have an heir from your own body. Remember last week, we talked about how Abram talked with the Lord and he told him, he said, Lord, I don't have an heir in my household. I don't have an heir. In fact, the one who would be heir in my household is Eliezer of Damascus. He's a servant. He's one, but he's the highest ranking one and he would be my heir. And isn't there something where you promised me that I would be the father of many nations that I would have offspring and all the rest of it and so God told him this he reassured him you're going to have an heir from your own body and and he believed God and Genesis 15:6 told us that the Lord credited that to Abraham as righteousness and And it was faith, and that's what righteousness, that's how righteousness comes to us. It's faith, believing in the word of God and in the accomplished work of the Lord, specifically Christ's work on the cross at Calvary. And so it was credited to him as righteousness. Now we come to chapter 16. Some years have passed from that assurance that the Lord gave him in, in chapter 15. And what happens? What happens when years pass and the promise of God doesn't seem to materialize? You're you're, you're waiting on the Lord, you're believing on the Lord, and and, and God is going to do this thing, but it it, it hasn't come to pass. And, and, And it's weeks and perhaps months, and the months turn into years and years pass, and there's several years that have passed, and you're still looking, you're still looking for the Lord to do what He said he was going to do that that he promised. And we have to just trust the Lord, amen, that God's going to do what he promised and he's going to do it according to his way and within his standard and within his plan and within his will. But Sarah got to thinking about the situation. And she saw that these years had gone by and... She said, Well, the, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. The, the Lord has 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 done this, Abram, and, uh, and 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 maybe we should do something about this. Maybe we should get involved. Maybe we should we, we should help this come to pass. You know there's this you know you know, Abram, there's this custom. There's this custom that we have in, in the Near East, here, the ancient Near East. They didn't call it that. I'm reminding you that it was the ancient Near East. Amen. And, and Sarah is talking to Abram, telling him, hey, you know, we have this custom that, you know, if I give you my, my handmaid and, and, and she has our children for us, that, that those in that custom, those, would be, those children would literally be credited to, uh, to Sarah and to the building up of the house. And so she comes up with this plan. She, she basically attributes the fact that it, the, the, the promise of God has not come about as the Lord had promised. He, she, she, she counts it towards the sovereignty of the Lord, that the Lord has restrained her. And, uh, and so she, she calls upon this custom of the land and you know, this is this is a tough this is a tough thing, and it's 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 you know I guess sometimes some people don't want to talk about it, but it's a tough thing. It was tough for women in this culture not to not to be able to bring forth, you know, the, the from from their own womb, and even today it's very tough uh, for those that that struggle in this area, and for whatever reason, um, for whatever reason it is, and and, and perhaps to the Lord's sovereignty on the issue, or in this case, just the delay in the timing of the Lord bringing it about. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it is very tough on women and and couples that are wanting to have children. So Sarah comes up with the idea to give Abram her handmaid Hagar, and she said to Abram, go into my handmaid Hagar that I might obtain children through her. There's a sense in the language there of the custom there, that it, you know, in the language there that I may obtain children, it's the idea of building up, building up the family. Because when you had children, you got married and you had children and you, and, and, and you just, you know, and back then, you know, they would, they would pump out the children, right? You know, I mean, they, 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 you know, that's, that's what happened. And so, so, you know, that was building up the family, was building up the household. And so she says, maybe it is that I'll have Obtain children through her. Maybe it is that through her we'll build up this household that the Lord has promised. And uh, and again, this was was not at all an obscure concept in the ancient Near East. In fact, it was a customary practice. The barren wife would give to her husband her handmaid that she might build up a family through her. And 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 again, I already I already. Spoke this in this custom, the offspring from such a union would be counted to the primary wife. So there was nothing wrong with it, nothing wrong with the suggestion in terms of the customs of their time. Hear me very specifically on that. According to their custom, the customs, not Abram and Saris, but the customs of the culture, it was within the norm of the custom, of the culture. But it was not according to God's plan. You see, it wasn't according to God's plan. And Jesus answered this, you know, in in case, you know, and and, and people have come up with all kinds of questions when it comes to marriage. You know, what is it? What does it look like? How, How should we construct it from a societal standpoint? And... I have heard this, that, well, you know what? Jesus never, never talked about this area or that area or this specific subject. But he did specifically say what a marriage was when he was asked about divorce. And what did he say? He said, it was this way from the beginning, and he literally quoted Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two, the two shall be one flesh, right? So this is the way that it was from the creation. So whatever may come in terms of the norm of the culture, that's that. What are God's standards? What's God's way is very clear in Scripture, and it only is obscured by those who wish to obscure the clarity of it. And let me say this, and I've read countless articles about this. They say monogamy actually does all this good and this good and this good and this good. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But I didn't need to study I didn't need to study from the university. Yeah, that helps. It helps me that you are kind of coming to the conclusion that we've all had, those of us who've read our Bibles, that said this is the plan of God for marriage. Mm -hmm. So as a Christian, I don't need to lean on the Stanford study. Although they do some good study out there in Palo Alto. Right? (laughs) Right? I can rely on the word of God, amen? Amen. It wasn't according to God's plan. One of the commentators, uh, Kyle and Delich, they said this about this particular issue. They were both of them soon to learn that their thoughts were the thoughts of man and not of God, and their wishes and actions were not in accordance with the divine promise. They were, sh- were going to learn real quick. Going to learn real quick. What happens? How, do we, how are we going along? We've got the promise. We're people of faith. We're moving on in the Lord. And then what happens? You know, We're in the spirit. And then we get in the flesh. How does it happen? How, how, how is it that we get derailed? Well, James tells us in the famous chapter, chapter 1 of James, verses 14 and 15. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen for you. He said this, but each one is tempted when he is what? When he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So what happens? How do we get drawn into sin? How do we get off into the flesh? When we're enticed, when we're drawn away by our own desires, and we give into those desires, and we, we seek to, to, to fulfill those desires outside of the plan and the will of God. And that's a, that's a really great definition of sin. When we seek to fulfill the desires, and there's a lot of God-given desires that we have, amen? You have a, you have a God-given desire, perhaps to be married someday, single person out there. You have a desire, that's a, that's a good desire, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. In fact, the the Bible tells us that he who finds a wife finds a good thing, amen. And so that's that's good. But there's but there's a way to do that. And there's a plan, and you've got to submit yourself to the will and to the plan and not be enticed and drawn away by your own desires to fulfill that that longing that you have in a way that is not according to the plan of God. Amen. We have to be careful even if it's someone else we know that gives us the advice to do the thing. That's exactly what this situation was. Perhaps Abram's defenses were down. It wasn't like somebody else over in tent 42 over there and his grand complex of however many people. Remember, there were 318 men trained with a particular set of skills. It wasn't as if it was somebody over there. It was his own wife who said, Abram, hey, we need to, you know, this is a good idea. And, of course, Abram at that point is like, you know, he's, he's not given any pushback, right? There's no pushback from Abram. There's no, uh, well, the Lord, you know, we've met a couple times, and he said these things, and he assured me. I mean, I saw the smoking the smoking oven. I, small, saw, I saw the blazing torch. I saw him walk in between. I saw him promise. I saw him say, he said this stuff to me face to face. He assured me. No, you don't have any of that. We, we don't have any of it recorded. He says, okay, okay. Now I thought about this actually. And I thought about how I have a lot of great respect for the men and women whose names are in the Bible, you know. Not all of them. (laughs) There's a couple people that that I don't have respect for, you know. One of them, I bring up a lot, Alexander the Coppersmith, right? Remember, that's the one where Paul, at the end of one of his letters, he says, yeah, this guy, he did me a lot of harm. So I don't respect that guy. But most of the other people that I see, especially those that, 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 that followed the Lord, especially those in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, I have a lot of respect. But I also, I don't know that I envy that all of these specific details of their lives are all printed out for the whole world to read. If anybody cares to pick up a Bible and read all the salacious details of this conversation between Sarah and Abram, and why don't you take my handmaid and let's get this going and what I don't necessarily envy that. But I do praise the Lord that it that for those of us who are of faith, that all of our sins have been covered and cleansed, and love covers a multitude of sins. Amen? Amen. So I'm thankful for that. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this about receiving the, the, the advice from someone that's close to you. He said, "...the temptation is most dangerous when it is sent by a hand that is least suspected." It is our wisdom therefore to consider not so much who speaks as to what is spoken. So in other words, I think what he's getting at is sometimes we can we can just look, "Oh, well this so and so is telling me this. So this must be like good advice." And what Matthew Henry's saying, "Whoa whoa whoa, let's take a look. <laughs> let's, let's consider what this person is saying and and look into it from that standpoint." So how does this go over? This, this, this plan of action that they, that they do. Of course, Sarah gives Hagar, her handmaid, to Abram, and, and, and he goes into her, and, and, and basically it says, you know, he takes her into his embrace. And so, you know, we, we understand what's happening there. And so this is what happens, and she conceives. And how does it go over? Well, it goes south real quick. It it goes south really, really quick, and it becomes clear that Abram and Sarah got in the flesh. Look at verse four. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Who's this? So when Hagar, so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Hagar conceived, and when Hagar saw that she had conceived her mistress sarah became despised in her eyes in other words when she became pregnant by abram she immediately became elevated in her own mind in her own heart in her own eyes and she began to dis- to look down on the the, the 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 mother of the you know the the, the, the woman of the home right. and began to despise her. And, uh, and so, as you can see, this, this goes really, really bad. Hagar looks down on Sarah. The original language actually reads, her mistress became little in her eyes. Her mistress became little in her eyes. And so then what happens when things go south? When we take the advice or when we do things or when, when, when things go into the flesh, and we're not ready to own up to the fact that we got into the flesh, what happens? We deflect and we distract, we blame shift, we try to find someone else to put it it on, and that's exactly what Sarah does in verse five. Blame shifting, verse five, she says this, then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maiden to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. Wow, what's this? So when Hagar actually becomes pregnant, Sarah becomes angry with Abram. Look what she says. My wrong be upon you. The English, the, the, uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, translates it this way. May the wrong, may the wrong done to me be on you. But wait a second, wait a second. Sarah, this was your idea. You wanted to go with the cultural norm. You wanted to step outside of God's plan on this, and now that this thing, this plan that you hatched in your own mind and heart, now it's full-grown. Now you want to put this on Abram. You want to put it on Abram. She unjustly charges him. One commentator suggested that Sarah's statement suggests that Abram encouraged Hagar and that this is why she turned, and so despised Sarah. That perhaps in those intimate moments that something was said, or we don't know. We don't have all these records. It's only speculation. But you, you know how you, you know how this type of thing could go, and how it could escalate. So Sarah wants her hurt to be on Abram, and this is how it goes when we follow the way of the flesh. We bring a whole lot of hurt on ourselves. When we get get out of the spirit, we get in the flesh, we bring a whole lot of hurt on ourselves. And we might say, well, let this hurt be on somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. Somebody else did this. Somebody else led me this. And, you know, it takes me back to the garden, really. You know, why'd you do this? Why'd you eat this, Adam? "Well, Well, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. Woman, why did you weep? Well, the, the serpent, the nakash, he, he, he deceived me, and I ate. And we're, we're wanting to, to put it on someone else. And so what we do, we find someone else to blame, someone else to pin it on, so at least we can feel victimized by the situation and not responsible for it. And this is pretty much a nutshell picture of our culture today, wanting to play the part of the victim rather than being responsible for our own actions and realizing that life is a series of choices and and, and that the choice to follow the Lord and and to disobey is before us always. The, the, The fork in the road, the proverbial fork in the road is always before us. There's always a choice. Every day that I wake up, it's a choice, it's about what I'm gonna do that day. Am I gonna get up and am I gonna put, put my head up, let the Lord be the glory and lifter of my head and, and, and move forward in the spirit or am I going to go the other route? Play the, the blame game, the victim card, whatever it might be. And, and this is, is a real shame. And this leads, it ultimately leads to further action that the further actions then begin to compound upon themselves. And so one wrong action leads to another wrong action and a wrong decision based upon those wrong decisions. And I've said this before and I'll say it again here, that wrong decisions can compound in a person's life so that it brings them down a path that they begin to look around and they say, oh wow, I'm so far gone, I'm so far down this road, how am I gonna ever change anything? And the answer is to make one good right choice by turning back to the Lord. Make the first good choice by turning back to the Lord and back to his ways and back to the the, the loving embrace of his arms, of his grace, of his love, the forgiveness, owning it, and beginning from there to make the choices that God wants us to make by living in the spirit and not giving place to the flesh in our lives. And we begin to make a lot of good decisions. And those decisions can begin to compound one on top of the other. But when we're headed in the other direction, and I see a lot of people, they're headed in the opposite direction. And one action leads, one unrighteous action leads to another one, which leads to another one, which leads to another one. And they find themselves deeper and deeper into the flesh and deeper and deeper into sin. The best thing, the very best thing that we can do when we have sinned, when we've fallen short of the glory of God, is to come to God, to come immediately back to God, to turn from the direction that we went where we veered off path immediately and come back to the Lord. That's the very best thing that we can do in that situation. When we've sinned, come to Christ, come immediately to Christ, don't wait, don't, don't let other thoughts come into your brain, don't let other ideas, don't let anybody else give you other, any other advice, this is the advice. Turn and repent of your sins and come immediately back to Christ, because he loves you, and, and, he, and, he, and he wants to, to talk to you, he wants to forgive you, he wants, he's there with, with, with love and grace and mercy, and he wants to restore. We're, we are not sinless. But when we do sin, we have an advocate. John tells us in his epistle, we have an advocate, Jesus the righteous, Jesus the righteous, who stands by ready to pardon our sin, but we must come to him. We must confess. John put it this way in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, if you don't have this verse memorized, 1 John 1, 9, I think you all should. This should be one of your very favorite verses as a Christian because it talks about the Lord's willingness to forgive sin for those who come to him and confess. Now, what does it mean to confess? Confessing is not really verbalizing your sin to God, although that may be a part of it. People think, oh, well, just verbalize your sin to God. That may be a part of it, but confession in the Bible is really agreement. The idea of the word in the Bible of confession is really agreement. So when we confess our sin to God, what we're really doing is we are coming into agreement with his evaluation of our conduct and our circumstance. We agree, we confess, Lord, Lord, I agree with you. What I did was bad. (laughs) I sinned. I fell short of the glory, Lord. I agree with you. It's the type of thing where you're not totally in agreement and you're just trying to verbalize stuff. uh, Getting through some type of a verbal checklist and like if somebody hears this and somebody be on a screen somewhere and, you know, forgives you or whatever, then you're forgiven. No, that's not how it works. How it works is if we genuinely confess our sin before God, if we agree with God. And that's, that's, there's a moment in time when you realize that you've fallen short of the glory of God, and you know it, and the Lord is has is, is come out to meet you. <laughs> and, and maybe you've been still walking the other direction, but you're grappling with it, and you know, and there's that moment in time when you ascend to that that idea that says, Lord, you're right. I agree with you. I was wrong. I sinned against you. You know, you read the 51st Psalm, which is the Psalm that, that David wrote after the sin with Bathsheba, and there's a lot of confession in that. It's, I was wrong. I sinned against you, Lord. I sinned against you, Lord. I agree. And this is what it means to confess. And if we confess our sins, what does John say? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is what we need to remember. Christian, we need to remember this. In fact, if you haven't, rem- if you haven't committed this verse of Scripture to memory, I want, that's your homework. Amen? For the week. First John 1 John 1.9. That's your U-turn verse, to head straight back to the Lord when you've fallen, when you've blown it, when you've got off the track, when you've gotten the flesh. We need to hold on to this and keep it in our minds. Now, this particular thing that happened, of the conception of this son, this baby that's going to be born from this union... This getting in the flesh has perhaps had repercussions unlike any other sin, save the sin in the garden (laughs) of eating from the tree that they were restricted not to eat of. This sin has created another lineage that are really brothers of the promised people of God, but they're literally standing outside and against. And even to this day, what we're talking about tonight in Genesis 16 is one of the main issues of global tension in the, in the, in the Middle East. As the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac are against one another. And we see this. And every leader comes and they're going, oh, well, this person's going to solve it and this person is going to solve it. This thing can't be solved by human wisdom, amen? This thing is so tangled all the way back here to Genesis 16 that no one can unravel it. There's one, actually, that's going to unravel it <laughs> officially, amen? And he's coming, He's coming again, and he's going to unravel it. So she says, so she blames this on Abram, and Abram says, well, you know, she's in your hand to do what you, what you want to do with her. And so Sarah goes back to Hagar and deals harshly with her, and the text tells us that, she, that, that Hagar runs out of the house. Sarah goes back, and is very harsh, and I don't know, you know, it was one of those, you know, a cat fight, I guess. I don't know. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyways, it went down and Hagar runs. And the ESV says it this way. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. She ran. She ran out of the house. But the Lord goes after the wayward son, the wayward daughter. Let's pick it up. Verse 7. It says this, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he shall be a wild man, he shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brothers." So the Lord goes after the wayward. So Hagar, so Sarah deals harshly with Hagar. She flees out. She's not going to stand for it. She's not going to sit there and take the harsh treatment. So where does she run? She runs out of the house and she runs on the way to Shur on the way back to Egypt. She's gonna she's gonna go back to Egypt. And she runs from the household, running back to Egypt where she was from. And this text tells us that the angel of the Lord goes out after her. Now, we have talked a little bit about the angel of the Lord as we've gone through Genesis, but here actually is the first time that this is mentioned in Scripture specifically. And we've talked about the reference of the angel of the Lord and brought that back into what were other uh, theophanies of God um, prior to this text. But here we have... The first time the phrase the angel of the Lord appears in scripture. Now, many are thrown off because you say the word angel and then you say, oh, well, well it's an angel and it's not the Lord. It's, the, it's an angel of the Lord or angel, the angel of the Lord. And they're, they're, one of the things that you'll see in scripture is that, a, that an angel of the Lord, if it is an angel, it's not going to receive worship. It, 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 it will reject worship. and you see this all the way through the Bible, where uh, those that may try to to fall prostrate before an angel and they will be uh, quickly told, you know, do, do not do this. I'm, I'm, just, I'm an angel. I'm a messenger sent. But the angel of the Lord does not reject worship. And so this is a messenger of another kind, the angel of Yahweh. He does not reject worship. And this is none other than the second person of the Trinity. This is literally Christ pre, pre the incarnation into human form. This is a, in some type of a, a spiritual form, perhaps the spiritual form that of, of those who are of the other realm, the, what we would call the spirit world. See, most people think of the spirit. As a Christian, I want to encourage you to stop thinking as as a, as, as this, of the spirit world as some type of a kind of a mystical, you know, gaseous world where just no, no, no. It is more real than this world. <laughs> that you know, that when we get over there, we're going to have a body. Amen. The Lord told us we're going to have a we're going to have a new body. He has a new body. He came back on the other side of the resurrection, and what did he do? He was in bodily form, but he walked through walls. So it was a body of of another form, of of, of, of of the unseen realm, a body of the unseen realm. Okay, we don't see it, but it's something else. And so we have to understand that. So what we have here literally is Jesus going out after Hagar. And I think as a believer, as a Christian, you have to love this because what you see is the Lord going out after this one that is running from the, from the household of faith. Abram is representative of the household of faith at this point. And here you have one running out, fleeing out of the household. And you have the Lord running out and, and, and tracking her down. Amen. And what does it show? It shows us the heart of the true shepherd. That, that the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd, and he goes out after us. He he went out after Adam and Eve, after they fell, after they disobeyed, after they ate the fruit that they were told not to eat. He went out after them, right? He went walking in the cool of the garden and and tracked them down. Hey, where, where, where are you? Well, we hid because we were naked. It shows the heart of the true shepherd because the true shepherd goes out after his people. Jesus talked about the true shepherd that would leave the 99 sheep in the pen and go out to find the one lost sheep. And this is the heart of the Lord that he has for every person, that he would go out, that he would track you down. I talked about this if you want to go back and Listen to that message from Genesis 3. It's called The Hound of Heaven. I called it that because that's the title of the first chapter of my book where I talk about how Christianity is about how God went after you. You didn't go after God. You know, I mean, back in the 70s, and I remember this because I was a little kid and I paid attention to at least some stuff back in the 70s, right? And I remember this. There was these people, the Christians, that would put these bumper stickers on their car car that says, I found it. Right? You remember? Anybody remember? I found it, bumper sticker. Seriously, there's a couple people here that actually remember what I'm talking about. The reality is, you didn't find it. The Lord found you. The Lord tracked you down. He's the Hound of Heaven. He came with unhurried chase. He came with an unperturbed pace, and, he, and 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 his feet. He came after you because he, he desires you to come home. He desires you to come back to the household of faith. He desires you to come back to that which he had planned for Adam, that you would be and conduct your life as the image of God in the world. And so he wants wants to call you back home. Back home. And the Lord asks her, what are you doing? Where are you going? Now, Now, we know that the Lord knows the answers to these questions, right? But I think, you know, he wants to get a dialogue going. Just like, you know what I'm reminded of when Jesus met the woman at the well? And here he is having this discussion with this woman, the Samaritan woman, right? And they're just having a dialogue, They're just having a talk and here the Lord comes and finds Hagar and says, where are you going? What are you doing? Where are you running? I've left Sarah. I've left my house. I'm going, I'm, I'm getting out of there. And. And she tells the Lord what she's doing and the Lord tells her what to do. Return to your mistress and submit to her. God knows the best place for you is to return home. Amen? God knows the best place for you is to return home. Like the prodigal who realized the prodigal son, remember him, the one who woke up, spent his inheritance, woke up in the trash in the gutter and the eating with the pigs or whatever it was. He said, I'm going home. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in my father's house than than lay in this trash. And he gets up and he goes home. And what does he find when he comes? He probably had in his mind, okay, look, I'm going to talk to dad. I'll just tell him, look, dad, I blew it. I sinned. I'll just give me the worst job in the house. I'll take care of it. And what does the father do? He ran. He ran to him. He dropped everything and he ran. And And it says he threw himself on. The passion of the Lord. For you, we sang it tonight. You're my passion. You're my passion. No, he's your passion. You're you're his passion. Amen? You're his passion. Can Can you imagine the father throwing himself on the prodigal? So the best thing to do is return home. The only question is, will you do it? Now, the Lord tells her that her seed would be multiplied, but also that he would he would be around his brothers, that he would dwell against his brothers, that he would dwell in the presence of his brothers, but against his brothers. And that's, a, that's kind of a prophecy, not only of Ishmael, but of, of the seed of Ishmael that would grow up and kind of grow in kind of this antagonism to the seed of Isaac. And we see this, what the Lord said there in those few verses about Ishmael, that it has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled right up to this very moment. And so what was, let's, let's wrap this up tonight. What was Hagar's response to the Lord? Let's pick it up, verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe it, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram's son and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. What was, a, what was Hagar's response to the Lord? It was the voice of faith. Hagar gives a name to the Lord. She says, you are Lahat Lahai Roy. Lahai Roy. She literally says, <laughs> you know, she kind of gives the Lord a name. And when you think about the name of God, what is the name of God? Huh? I am. I am, right? I am. He is, he is who he is. I am who I am. I, I exist, and I am who I am. And it's been said this way, kind of devotionally, that he is everything that we need. And when we discover him to be that which we actually needed, that's his name. And that's why the names of God, I mean, if you were to list them, I mean, he's all these things. He's a shelter. He's a healer. He's a a refuge. He's a strong tower. He's almighty. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. He is I am. And she says, you are El Roy. Hagar calls him El Roy. You are God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. This is what she said. God found me on this dusty road. I fled out of the house, I ran the other direction. I was getting out of there and God saw me, God found me, God tracked me down, God sees me. You are Elroy. Roy. And the reality of it and the, and the principle for us to realize is that God sees you. God sees you. We talked about last week, wherever we go he's there, right? The psalmist, when we go to sleep and we wake up, guess what? He's still there. (laughs) He didn't go to sleep. He watched you. He was with you while you were sleeping. He sees you, Christian. Christian, know this. God sees you and he cares for you. It is the voice of faith that we hear from Hagar. She recognizes God's gaze towards her and his care. And the spring is there. The well was called Bir Lahairoi which literally means the well of the living one, my seer. And the place commemorates this element, the, the, the idea of not only the one time that the Lord saw Hagar, but that God sees. He's the seer. God sees and he continues to sees, And he never, he never stops seeing you. We in our fight, finiteness do not see him All the time, especially when we wander into the flesh. Especially when we wander into the flesh. When we get in the flesh. But God sees us always and continuously. When the angel of the Lord told Hagar to return to Sarah, she could have this is what she could have said. She could have said, You know what? No, I'm not going back there. You should have saw how Sarah was to me. You should have saw how she spoke to me. Of course he did see. It's the God who sees. He's El Roy. She could have said, no way. Instead, she said, okay. She could have said, no way. But what she said was okay. Hagar not only made a confession of faith by acknowledging God as Lord, but she was obedient to him in returning to Sarah. You say, what? You say, Hagar acknowledged the Lord? Yeah, she called him Lord. She said, you're the Lord, you're El Roy, you're the God who sees me. And she heeded the command of the Lord, amen? And so, what do you do when you get in the flesh? You turn and go home immediately. Go to your home. Go to your home and go to 1 John 1, 9 and get it right with the Lord and get back in the spirit, amen? Get it under the blood, get it cleansed, purified, and get back on the right track. Don't try to pin it on somebody else. Don't try to let the hurt land on somebody else. Own it, don't be the victim, but realize God is there to move along, and he sees you, and even if you run the other direction, and even if you're the innocent bystander who's running the other direction from someone else's sin, God sees you and wants you home. In the spirit, in the kingdom, in the family, in the household of faith.